Do not despise, then, tried and afflicted soul, the chastenings of the Lord. He may now be about to communicate some of the most costly blessings of your life. Who can tell what mercies now await you, what covenant favors are in reserve, what new truths, what enlarged views of Christ, what an abiding sense of His love, what advances in holiness your covenant God and Father may through this painful yet needed discipline, be on the eve of making you the happy partaker of. Then look up and say, I will trust him and not be afraid. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. In this way does the Spirit often stir up, strengthen, and invigorate the divine life in the soul by sanctifying the discipline of the covenant. Although the limits assigned to this chapter have already been exceeded, we cannot properly close it without a brief exposition of some of the effects or fruits of regeneration as manifest in the spirit and life of a believer. We have incidentally touched upon some of them as we've passed along, yet there remain a few essential and prominent marks to be considered. The first evidence we would mention is holiness. This appears to be the order of the Holy Ghost. First John 3, 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. This is a solemn and important point. None more so. When we think how Satan can counterfeit God's work, when we remember how much false, spurious Christianity there is in the world, yes, even in the professing world, we cannot but feel peculiar solemnity here. But God has stamped His own work with His own seal, and a mind taught of the Spirit cannot fail to recognize it. Let us repeat the passage. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. These words have received two interpretations, which we believe are equally true. The more general one is that he who is born of God does not willingly sin, having put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, he cannot sin with the full consent and concurrence of the will. He hates it, he fights against it, he resists it, but it may be inquired, is not all sin an act of the will? We reply, not the renewed will. The Apostle speaks of two wills in a believer, or rather the same will under two opposite influences, in Romans 7.15, That which I do, I allow not, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. Verse 19, Romans 7, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Few will question that Paul here speaks of himself as a regenerate man, and yet he refers to two antagonistic principles dwelling in him. One is on the side of holiness, the other on the side of sin. What I hate, that I do. No man can possibly hate sin unless he is born of the Spirit. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And still he says, what I hate, the sin that is so abhorrent to me, that I do. Is there volition in the act? True philosophy demands that we reply, yes. Every sin must be voluntary. If not so, it cannot be sin. Is there the concurrence and consent of the renewed will in the act? True grace demands that we reply, no. For what I hate, there is the mark of the regenerate man. That do I, there is the act of the will under the influence of indwelling sin. But there is another and a stronger interpretation of which the passage is susceptible. It is this. He that is born of God as such does not sin at all. There is in him a regenerate soul, an indwelling living principle of grace and holiness, whose natural and constant bias is to holiness. He, the new man, cannot sin because he is born of God. He cannot sin. Why? Because his seed remaineth in him. And what is that seed? 1 Peter 1, 23. Incorruptible seed, being born again, not of incorruptible, but not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, in accordance with Christ's own words, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It is spiritual, holy, 
from above, the divine nature. It cannot sin because it is born of God. Here then is the great evidence of regeneration. Let not the reader mistake it. Aware how tender the conscience of a dear child of God often is, how acutely alive to every view of truth that appears condemnatory, how prone to self-accusation, thinking hard and bitter things, calling that nature which is grace, extracting sometimes from the very consolations of God's word material for self-condemnation, we would here tenderly caution the Christian reader against a misinterpretation of what we have advanced in the preceding sections. We are far from asserting that sin does not still exist in the regenerate. Hmm. Paul himself speaks in Romans 7.20 of the sin that dwelleth in me. The entire testimony of God's word and the histories of all the saints recorded in its pages go to confirm the doctrine that indwelling sin remains in a believer. The Lord has wisely, we must acknowledge, so ordained it that sin should yet remain in his people to the very last step of their journey. And for this he has graciously provided his word as a storehouse of promises, consolations, cautions, rebukes, admonitions, all referring to the indwelling sin of a believer. The covenant of grace, all its sanctifying, strengthening, invigorating, and animating provision, all was designed for this very state. The gift of Jesus, all his fullness of grace, wisdom, strength, and sympathy, his death, resurrection, ascension, and advocacy, all this was given with a special view to the pardon of and subjection of sin in a child of God. Perfect holiness, entire sinlessness, is a state not attainable in this life. I repeat, perfect holiness, entire sinlessness, is a state not attainable in this life. He who has settled down with the conviction that he has arrived at such a stage has great reason to suspect the soundness or at least the depth of his real knowledge of himself. He indeed must be but imperfectly acquainted with his own heart, who dreams of perfect sanctification on this side of glory. With all meekness and tenderness, we would earnestly exhort such an individual to review your position well, to bring your heart to the touchstone of God's word, to pray over the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans, and to ascertain if there are not periods when the experience of an inspired apostle once caught up to the third heaven will not apply to him. I am carnal, sold under sin, the sin that dwelleth in me. The writings and the preaching of men, mistaken views of truth, yes, I would add, even what was once a sincere and ardent desire for sanctification, any one of these, or all combined, may have led to the adoption of such a notion as sinless perfection, the nature and tendency of which is to engender a spirit of human pride, self-trust, and self-complacency, to throw the mind off its guard and the heart off its prayerful vigilance, and thus render the man an easy prey to that subtle and ever-prowling enemy of whose devices, and this is not the least one, no believer should be ignorant. Oh yes, sin, often deep and powerful, dwells in a child of God. It is the source of his greatest grief, the cause of his acutest sorrow. Remove this, and sorrow in the main would be a stranger to his breast. Go and ask that weary, dejected, weeping believer the cause of his broken spirit, his sad countenance, his tears. Is it, you inquire, that you are poor in this world? No. Is it that you are friendless? No. Is it that worldly prosperity does not shine upon you? Your plans are blasted, your circumstances are trying, your prospects are dark? No. What is it then that grieves your spirit, clouds your countenance, and that causes those clasped hands and uplifted eye? It is sin, the soul replies, that dwells in me. Sin is my burden. Sin is my sorrow. Sin is my grief. Sin is my confession. Sin is my humiliation before my Father and God. Rid me of this, and the outward pressure would scarcely be felt. Truly does the Apostle say, and let the declaration never be read apart 
from its accompanying promise, If we say that we have no sin, 1 John chapter 1, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Again, we beg the reader to note this great evidence of the new birth. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. He doth not commit it with the total, absolute, and complete assent and concurrence of the renewed will. He does not give himself over to sin with greediness. He would do good. He hates sin. Grace reigns, not sin. Sin dwells in him, but does not govern. It has power, but does not rule. It torments, but does not reign with a continued, unbroken supremacy. His experience accords with the promise, Sin shall not have dominion over you. It may for a moment triumph, as it did in David, in Peter, and in a host of other eminently holy men of Scripture. Yet, still, the promise is verified, as we see in the restorings of the Blessed Spirit, in their spirit and conduct, in their humblings and confessions, and holy and upright walk with God in after years. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Reader, have you ever been made aware of the plague of sin within you? What do you know of warfare in the soul, of the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh? Your honest reply will decide the great question whether or not you are born of God. Secondly, there is a positive mark of regeneration, the new birth, 1 John 2.29. Everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Negative holiness, the abstaining from outward sins, does not always describe a regenerate soul. Associated with this, there must be positive evidence. Everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Where there is life... There is action, motion, and energy. The life of, re of a regenerate man is a life of the highest activity. The principles that influence him are divine and heavenly. Their tendency is to holy action. The more we resemble Christ in righteousness and true holiness, the stronger the evidence to ourselves and to others that we are born again. We possess professedly, and if not self-deceived, actually the life of Christ, that life is holy in its tendency and vigorous in its acting. The renewed soul longs for holiness. He pants for divine conformity. He does not rest in the mere longing. He arises and labors for the blessing. He works out his salvation with fear and trembling. He prayerfully and diligently uses the means the Lord of sanctification has given him for the attainment of holiness. He is active in his pursuit of the blessing. He does not resemble the sluggard who rests in mere desire. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing. But he resembles the diligent soul of whom it is said, Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. He seeks the blessing. He seeks it diligently, perseveringly, he watcheth daily at the gates. He waits at the posts of the doors. If he does not find it in one way, he seeks it in another. Should one door of grace be closed, he turns to another. For grace has many doors of blessing. If the ministry conveys no nourishment, he seeks it in a more retired walk. Perhaps he turns to the communion of saints, but he may find no refreshing there. For God sometimes makes his people a dry tree. Disappointed in this channel, he turns to the revealed word. This he finds a sealed book. No promise meets his case. No consolation speaks from its sacred page. Driven from this door, he flies to the throne of grace. Precious pavilion, ever verdant spot of a tempest-tossed, wearied spirit. But, alas, a cloud overshadows the mercy seat. This last sanctuary of his soul, not the cloud of the Shekinah, the visible glory of the Lord, but the dark clouds of sin and unbelief. 
just ready, all hope to resign, he goes out into the highways and hedges of sin and wretchedness. He enters a hovel, goes down into the cellar, or climbs up to the attic, the gloomy abode of some child of sickness, sorrow, and want. He inquires for the Sabbath school child, or delivers a tract, or drops a word of reproof, rebuke, exhortation, comfort, or prayer. And while, like his divine master, he is going about doing good, the Lord the Spirit meets him with a blessing. The sun of righteousness breaks in upon his soul. Every cloud is gone, and he looks up to God's serene countenance and calls him Abba, Father. Thus is he made to experience the blessedness of the man that heareth God, watching daily at his gates. Thirdly, Victory over the world may be specified as another and a strongly marked feature of a regenerate man. 1 John 5, 4, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. How does victory over the world mark one born of God? It proves it in this way. That which overcomes the world must be superhuman, of almighty power. It cannot be anything of the world, nor can it be of the flesh, for the flesh has no power over the flesh, and the world will never oppose itself. The flesh loves itself, and the world is too fond of power, quietly and unresistingly to yield to its dominion. What then is that which overcomes the world? Our brother John goes on to reply, And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith, then, is the conquering grace. This it is that gives the victory. It is this that crushes this tremendous foe of sin. And what is faith but the gift of God and the work of the eternal Spirit in the soul, so that he who possesses that faith which is of the operation of the Spirit is born of God, and whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And the instrument by which he overcomes the world is faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And how does faith overcome the world? By leading the believer to the cross of Jesus. The true faith deals with its great object, Jesus. It goes to Him in the conflict. It goes to Him when hard-pressed. It goes to Him in its weakness. It goes to Him in deep distress. On Him it leans, and through Him it always obtains the victory. Of the martyrs it is recorded that they overcame through the blood of the Lamb, and Paul employs similar language in describing his victory. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. It is faith in Christ that gives us the victory. How could a feeble saint with no strength or wisdom in himself overcome so powerful and subtle an enemy as this without supernatural aid? He never could. Look at the world. There are its ten thousand temptations, its temptations of pleasure, its temptations of ambition, its temptations of wealth, its false religion, its temporizing policy, its hollow friendship, its empty show, its gay deceptions, its ten thousand arts to snare, beguile, allure, and charm. Oh, how could one poor, weak believer ever crush this fearful, powerful foe, but as he is strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? The cross of Christ gives him the victory. Christ has already conquered the world, and faith in his blood will enable the feeblest soul to exclaim, while the enemy lies subdued at his feet, Thanks be unto God, which always causeth me to triumph in Christ. Reader, have you obtained the victory over the world, or has the world obtained the victory over you? One of the two is certain. Either you are warring against it, or you are its passive and resistless victim. Either you are born of God and have overcome the world, or you are yet unregenerate, and the world is still overcoming you. On whose side is the victory? 
Perhaps you profess faith in the Lord Jesus, yet love the world and conform to its maxims, its policy, its principles, its fashions, its dress, its amusements, even its very religion, for it has its hollow forms of religion. Is it so with you? Then hear what the word of the Lord says to you. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A solemn declaration for you who profess faith in Christ and who are still lovers of the world. You cannot love God and love the world at the same time. Do not be deceived. The outward garb will not save you. The mere name, the empty oil-free lamp, these will avail you nothing when you come to die. If the world has never been ejected from your heart, if you've never been crucified to the world, then the love of God is not there. If the love of God is absent, then you are a stranger to the new birth. There is another and a peculiar snare of the world to which the saints of God are exposed, and because many have fallen into it, and not a few have in consequence greatly embittered their happiness, retarded their holiness, and dishonored God, we would briefly, and in this connection, touch upon it with all tenderness and affection. We allude to the formation of matrimonial alliances between the saints of God and the unregenerate world. Between the saints of God, marriages with the unregenerate. The word of God is against a marriage so unholy and so unproductive, so productive of evil as this. Not a precept authorizes it. Not a precedent encourages it. Not a promise sanctions it. Not a blessing hallows it. Indeed, so far is God from authorizing unholy yokes that he expressly forbids it. Thus, 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 18 Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." How strong the command, how conclusive the argument, and how persuasive and touching the appeal. Could it be more so? The command is that a believer be not married to an unbeliever. The argument is he is a temple of God. The appeal is God will be a father to such, and they shall be his children who walk obedient to this command. There are many solemn considerations which seem to urge this precept upon the believer. A child of God is not his own. He does not belong to himself. Ye are not your own. His soul and body are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, and therefore he is Christ's. He must not. He cannot dispose of himself. He belongs to the Lord and has no authority to give away either soul or body. Oh, that this solemn fact could be written upon every believer's heart. Ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. May the eternal spirit now engrave it deeply and indelibly there. But more than this, if it were not enough to urge the command upon a believer, his body is the temple of the living God. How solemn and weighty is this consideration! And shall he take the temple of God and unite it with one who is a stranger to his grace, to his love, to his only begotten Son, with one whose mind is enmity against God, and whose heart beats not one throb of love to Jesus? God forbid! Know ye not, says James, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Then for a believer to form with an unbeliever an alliance so close and so lasting as marriage, involving interests so important and so precious, is to enter into a league with an enemy of God. It is to covenant, and that for life, with a despiser of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is no extenuation of this breach of God's command that the Lord has frequently, in the exercise of his sovereign grace, made the believing party instrumental to the conversion of the unbelieving party. He can, and often does, bring good out of evil, order out of confusion, making the wrath of man to praise him, and causing events that were designed to thwart his purposes to be the very means of promoting his purposes. But this is no encouragement to sin. And when sin is committed, this is but poor consolation. And to enter into a marriage of the nature we are deprecating, with a conscience quieted and soothed with the reflection that the wife may save the husband, or the husband may save the wife, is presumption of the highest kind. A presumption which God may punish with a disappointment as bitter as it is overwhelming. Let no dear child of God be allured into an alliance so unholy by a consideration so specious as this, that the wife may save the husband or the husband may save the wife. Many have fallen into the snare and have covered themselves with shame and confusion. To the believer himself, forming a marriage so contrary to the express injunction of God's word, the evils arising from it are many and grievous, to say nothing of the want of what must ever be considered essential to the mutual happiness of the marriage, oneness of mind, harmony of sentiment, congruity of spirit, these are lacking, the higher elements of happiness, the mutual faith of each other in Christ, the communion of redeemed spirits, the holy intercourse of renewed minds, the unutterable sweetness of talking of Jesus, by the way, and as heirs together of the grace of life, the joy of looking forward to the reunion of the glorified bodies beyond the grave. It is from the very nature of things impossible that these elements of happiness should exist in the relation we are considering of an unequal yoke in marriage. The individuals thus united are inhabitants of different worlds. One is an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, a stranger and a foreigner. The other is a fellow citizen with the saints and of the household of God. They speak different languages, are traveling opposite roads, and are journeying towards different countries. Surely we may ask, what real union and communion can exist there? But more than this, there are not merely negative but positive evils resulting from such a marriage. The influences that are perpetually exerting their power are hostile to all growth in grace, to any advance in sanctification, and to an upright and holy walk with God. The temptations to inconsistency of Christian conduct are many, perpetual and alarming. The constant influence of a worldly conversation, worldly example, worldly pursuits, it weakens by slow but certain degrees the spiritual life of the soul, impairs the taste for and lessens the enjoyment in spiritual duties, unfits the mind for communion with God, and opens the door for an almost endless train of departures. We do not claim that all these evils are realized, but we do say that the believer who so shapes his course is fearfully exposed to them, and that he has not been or may not be overcome of them is of the mere grace of God. The evils themselves are the necessary consequences of his departure from God's word, and that he is preserved from the direst of them is only of the covenant mercies of that God, who in the midst of all these temptations is alone able to keep his people from falling. A child of God passing through this veil of tears requires all the spiritual help he can get to urge him on his way. All the strength, the comfort, the encouragement, and all the support it is possible for him to obtain from any and every quarter. He needs to call into full exercise in order to bear up against the many and peculiar difficulties that throng his path and would keep him from advancing. Infirmities within and impediments without, inward corruptions and outward trials, the strugglings of sin and the assaults of Satan, all conspiring to cast him down and often exhorting and extorting from him David's exclamation, My soul cleaveth to the dust. At such a period, how strengthening, how supporting, how encouraging and how animating the communion and soothings of a kindred spirit a spirit one with himself.
If it be true, and most true it is, that as iron sharpeneth iron, so doth the countenance of a man his friend, to a much greater degree, and in a more endearing sense, is this reciprocity experienced in the high and endearing relation we are considering. The godly husband and the godly wife are true helpmeets to each other. They belong to the same family, speak the same sweet language, are traveling the same happy road, and are journeying to the same blissful home. For a child of God, then, to unite himself to one who can be of no assistance to him in his journey, but rather a hindrance, who, when he speaks of conflicts, cannot understand them, of burdens, cannot lighten them, of perplexities, cannot guide them, of trials, cannot share them, of sorrows, cannot soothe them, and of joys and hopes, cannot participate in them, is indeed to mark out for himself a lonely and desolate path which may know no termination of its trial until it conducts him to the grave. To the Christian reader who may already have taken the step, we would say with much affection, guard vigilantly against its hurtful consequences. Necessary as they are, they may in a degree be greatly mitigated. Draw largely from the grace that is in Christ Jesus, treasured up for all the circumstances and the necessities of his people. Be doubly prayerful, watchful, and humble, let your whole deportment be marked by the fear of God, a jealous regard for His honor, and a beautiful harmony with the high vocation wherewith you are called. And may God overrule the event to His glory and your real good. To others we would say, guard against this needless and unscriptural entanglement with the world. Marry only in the Lord. In all thy ways acknowledge Him. Let his word be your guide, his fear your rule, his glory your aim, and he will direct your paths through life, sustain you in death, and conduct you safely to his heavenly kingdom. As we review the subject of this chapter, many important considerations suggest themselves, which in closing can be allowed but a brief and passing notice. The first is, how high the obligation to live to God. Are we born again? Can we think of the horrible pit, the miry clay, the valley of bones, the rock whence we were hewn, and then remember that if we are born again, we have in our souls at this moment the buddings of eternal life? Oh, can we think of this and not desire an unreserved surrender of all we are and all we have to God? Christian, watch over your principles, your daily walk, your intercourse with the world, and see that the evidences of the new birth signalize every action of your life. The world is a close observer. Narrowly and vigilantly are you watched. The world weighs your actions, it scrutinizes your motives, sifts your principles, and ponders all your steps, waiting for your stumbling. Disappoint it. Live out your religion. Carry out your principles. They are designed not merely for the Sabbath, but for the week. Not merely to be exhibited in the place and at the hour of prayer and in social Christian intercourse, but they are to be carried into your haunts of business, into your shop, your counting house, your study, your profession. You are to exhibit them not in a spirit of vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, in all your behavior with a world lying in wickedness. To be born again, oh, it is a mighty work. Let the evidences of its reality in you be such as shall compel the gainsayer to admire the work, though he may hate the change. Oh, be in spirit, in temper, in life, like Jesus. Have not even you, who may be tried and afflicted, much to make you praise God? Born again? How light are your afflictions when compared with this? Take the scales and weigh the two. Place in your very, in your, place in one your every sorrow. Is it domestic? Place it there. Is it personal? A nervous frame? A feeble constitution? Trying circumstances? Place it there. Are friends unfaithful? Are saints unkind? Does the world frown? Place it all there. Then, on the other scale, put your hidden life, your sense of pardon, and your hope of heaven. These outweigh them all, for I reckon, says Paul, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Unconverted reader, what solemn truth does this subject address to you? 
you must have perceived that the Word of God sets before you a new mold into which you must be cast. It professes to work a great change in you in the hands of the eternal Spirit, not of opinions only, but of your nature, of your heart. Is this done? Do not turn away from the question. Do not lightly pass it by. Your all depends on the answer to it. Eternity hangs upon the issue. I ask not what you hold, what you know, or what you profess, but what you are. Are you born again? Are you a new creature? Do not say peace, peace, when there is no peace. You may persuade yourself or be persuaded by others that regeneration is all enthusiasm, a delusion and a lie, and yet this fearful truth will still remain. The sinner must be born again or sink to endless woe. Chapter 4 The Indwelling of the Spirit The Believer, a Temple 1 Corinthians 6:19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? That the religion of our adorable Emmanuel is a reality, no fairy tale, as is the Mohammedan, and no cunningly devised fable, as is the Roman Catholic. Many conclusive and precious are the evidences. There is, however, to the true believer... One evidence which, apart from and superior to all others, affixes the seal of credibility. This is the conviction of its truth arising from the indwelling of the Spirit in the heart. There is in this great truth something so palpable, so undoubted, and so self-evident that no sophistry of man, no ingenuity of Satan, and no knowledge of the deep evil of our fallen nature can weaken or overthrow it. It is God himself, as it were, taking the witness stand and setting aside all other testimony, challenging everything that would reduce his own work to a mere non-entity, and exclaiming, Who is he that condemneth? Clad in the armor of this evidence, the feeblest disciple of Jesus takes higher ground in vindication of the truth of the gospel than the acutest reasoner who is destitute of the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, it is true that the conviction arising from this source of evidence is the strongest and most convincing to his own mind, yet there is in the simplicity the honesty and the boldness with which his belief is declared, that which carries a powerful conviction to the minds of others. He may be challenged by the skeptic, there may be objections which he cannot meet, arguments which he cannot answer, difficulties which he cannot explain, and sophisms which he cannot unravel, and yet the witness within himself shall throw such vigor into his reasoning and tenderness into his spirit, and shall invest his whole demeanor with an air of sincerity so touching that his accusers shall be compelled to pay him the tribute once awarded to his Lord. He speaks as one having authority. He believes and has experienced what he declares, and thus God has given him a mouth and wisdom which all his adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. But let it not be supposed that we regard the indwelling of the Spirit in the believer as presenting merely or even mainly an evidence in favor of the truth of the gospel. This undoubtedly demands a distinct and grateful recognition, but we must not rest here. We are to take a more enlarged view of the glory of God as unfolded in this most holy and blessed doctrine. His glory has secured to him in the comfort holiness, and filial walk of the believer who is conscious that he is a temple of the Holy Ghost. We feel the subject to be one of great and solemn importance. Its vastness is almost overpowering. The bare thought that the high and lofty one inhabiting eternity whose name is holy should dwell within man, yes, in him, that he should take out of the fallen race of his creatures a people whose hearts should be so renewed and sanctified as to form a dwelling place of the Holy Ghost, that this heavenly visitant should take up his abode there in all his regenerating, sanctifying, sealing, and comforting influences. The bare thought of this seems almost too illimitable and glorious for a poor finite mind to grasp. And yet, reader, the consolation flowing from this subject is so great, and the motives to holiness drawn from it so persuasive, and God so glorified by it, that we feel constrained to place it in the foreground of this treatise. 
May he himself draw near, unfold his own truth to our minds, and sanctify us through its holy influence. The first thought that presents itself to the mind as we look into this great subject is that suggested by the passage placed at the head of this chapter. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? The great idea here conveyed is that the believer is a temple, the residence of that temple being God, the Holy Ghost. With the converted Corinthians, to whom these words were addressed, the figure would be at once striking and significant. The magnificent city in which they dwelt abounded with gorgeous temples erected to the honor of supposed deities, at whose idolatrous and superstitious rites they had frequently attended in the days of their ignorance, drawing their minds away from the service of idols, while at the same time using the concept of a heathen temple as an illustration of his fine idea, the apostle, by an easy and a beautiful transition of thought, leads them to consider themselves as temples in an eminent and holy sense, formed, consecrated, and adorned for the indwelling of God the Holy Ghost. There is a depth of important and spiritual truth in this idea which we desire to unfold, as the divine teacher shall himself anoint us with that anointing which teacheth us of all things. In contemplating the believer as a temple of the Holy Ghost, it is natural and proper to consider the condition of the soul previous to the entrance of the Spirit of God. Man, in his original constitution, was a glorious temple. Two facts will prove it. First, he was like God in his moral image, and second, God dwelt in him. He was in every respect worthy of such a resident. He was the holy temple of a holy God. Not a flaw was there. The entire man was holy. There was perfect knowledge in the judgment, perfect holiness in the will, and perfect love in the heart. Holiness to the Lord was the inscription written on every window and every door, yes, on every part of Adam's temple. A beautiful structure was man in his original state. Well did the Almighty Architect, as he gazed upon his man, pronounce it very good. But behold, what sin has done. Man has lost his original resemblance to God. It is true that he still retains a spiritual, intelligent, and immortal nature. These he can never lose. But as for his moral likeness to God in knowledge, purity, justice, truth, and benignity, these glorious lineaments are blotted from his soul, and darkness, impurity, desolation, and death reign there. With the obliteration of moral resemblance, the soul has lost all love to God. More than this, there is not only the absence of love, but, as we have shown in a former chapter, there is positive enmity. The carnal mind is enmity against God, that enmity showing itself in a thousand ways, principally in its seeking to dethrone God. From his affections he has dethroned him. To eject him from the throne of his moral government in the universe is the great and constant aim of the carnal mind. If this is not so, why this perpetual war against God, against His being, His law, His will, His supreme authority to govern and reign? Why this refusal to acknowledge and obey Him? Who is the Lord God that I should obey Him? Oh, there is no mystery in the case. Man has revolted from God, and having thrown off all allegiance to Him as His sovereign, he seeks to be a god to himself. Self is to him what Jehovah once was, the object of supreme delight. Having cast out God, he moves in a circle of which he himself is the center. All he does is from self and for self. From this all the lines diverge, and to this they all again return. It needs not the argument or the illustration of a moment to show that such a being, the moral destitution of man, God has ceased to dwell in him. The temple is polluted, defaced, destroyed. The divine resident is gone, and the heart once so sweet a home of deity is now the dwelling place of all sin. Another occupant has taken possession of the ruin, and like ancient Babylon it has become the den of every ravenous beast, a habitation of dragons, and the impure abode of every foul, malignant passion. 
Reader, it is as impossible that God can make your heart his dwelling place while every thought and feeling and passion is up in arms against him as it would be for Christ to dwell with Belial or light to commingle with darkness. You must be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You must be born again. But it was God's eternal and gracious purpose to restore this temple. Satan had despoiled God's work. Sin had marred his image. But both usurpers he would eject, and the ruin of both God would repair. Oh, what mercy, infinite, eternal, and free was this that set him upon a work so glorious. What could have moved him but his own love? What could have contrived the plan but his own wisdom? And what could have executed it but his own power? In the restoration of this temple, man was no auxiliary. He could be none. His destruction was his own. His recovery was God's. He ruined himself. That ruin he could not himself repair. The work of restoration is a greater achievement of divine power than was the work of creation. To repair the temple when ruined was more glorious than to create it. In one day God made man. He was four thousand years in redeeming him. It cost God nothing to create a soul. It cost him his dear son to save that soul. And who can estimate that cost? He met with no opposition in creating man. In recreating him, Satan, the world, even the man himself is against him. We have said that it was God's gracious and eternal purpose to restore this ruined temple. The first step which he took in accomplishing this great work was his assumption of our nature, as though he himself would be the model from which the new temple should be formed. This was one of the profoundest acts of God's wisdom, one of the greatest demonstrations of his love. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us tabernacled among us, his human body, the temple, his Godhead, the indwelling deity. Was ever a temple so glorious as this? Emmanuel, God with us. God was manifest in the flesh. Oh, awful mystery. What imagination can conceive? What mind can fathom it? We can but stand upon the shore of this vast ocean of wisdom and love and exclaim, Oh, the depth. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. This was the first step towards his work of replenishing the earth with spiritual temples, to be filled now and eternally with the divine presence and glory. The entire success and glory of his undertaking rested here. This was the foundation of the structure. He could only obey the law as he was made of a woman. He could only redeem them that were under the law as he was God in our nature. The absolute necessity then of his Godhead will instantly appear. Had the basis of the great work he was about to achieve been laid in any other doctrine, anything inferior, less holy, less dignified, had the foundation been laid in mere creature excellence, however exalted that excellence might be, there could have been neither strength, permanency, nor glory in the temple. It would have fallen before the first storm of temptation, and fearful would have been its destruction. God well knew at what cost the work of redemption would be achieved. He knew what his violated law demanded, what his inflexible justice required, and through what costly channel his love must flow. Therefore he laid help upon one that was mighty, mighty to save. And what was the secret of his might? His absolute deity. To take a lower viewer than this, and you reduce the work of Christ to nothing. You tear the soul from the body, pluck the sun from the firmament, wrench the keystone from the arch and the foundation from the building. But look at his work through his Godhead. And oh, how vast, how costly, how glorious does it appear. What a basis for a poor sinner to build upon. What a resting place for the weary soul. What faith. Hope and assurance does it inspire. How perfect the obedience, how infinitely efficacious the blood, and how prevailing the intercession, all derived from the Godhead of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glorious temple wast thou, blessed Son of God. But this temple was to be destroyed. 
Jesus must die. This was the second step in the accomplishment of the great work. Thus did he announce the fact to the obtuse and incredulous Jews. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He spake of the temple of his body. His death was as necessary to the satisfaction of justice as his life of obedience had been to the fulfilling of the law. As the substitute of his people, he must yield up his life. As the surety of the covenant, he must completely surrender himself into the hands of divine justice. As the testator of his own will, there must of necessity be his death. Otherwise the testament would have been of no force at all while he lived. There was no possible avenue for his escape, even had he sought it. He or his people must die. He must taste the bitterness of the death that was temporal, or his elect must have tasted of the bitterness of the death that was eternal. Oh yes, Jesus wished to die. Never for one moment did he really shrink from the combat. He well knew the conditions upon which he had entered into a covenant engagement on behalf of his people. He knew that the price of their pardon was his own blood, that his death was their life, and that his gloomy path through the grave was their bright passage to eternal glory. Knowing all this, and with the awful scene of Calvary in full view, the cross, the sufferings of the body, the deathly sorrow of the soul, yet he panted for the arrival of the moment that was to finish the work his Father had given him to do. How ready was Jesus thus to die? Whence this eagerness? It sprang from his great love to sinners. Oh, this was it. We must go down to the secret depth of his love if we would solve the mystery of his willingness to die. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thus was the temple of his body destroyed, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. See, reader, the source of your free pardon, the ground of your humble trust, the secret of your strong consolation, it is all involved in the death of Jesus. You cannot ask too much, you cannot expect too much, you cannot repose too much at the foot of the cross. All is mercy here, all is love, all is peace. Sin cannot condemn, Satan cannot tempt, the world cannot allure, conscience cannot accuse, there is no condemnation to a poor soul that shelters itself beneath the cross of Jesus. Here every dark cloud withdraws, and all is sunny. Here every tear is dried, but that of joy, and every voice is hushed, but that of praise. But a third step in the accomplishment of this stupendous design was the resurrection of Christ. This formed an essential and glorious part of his work in preparing a way for the personal and permanent resident of the Holy Ghost. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Great stress is laid upon this doctrine in the Word, and the child of God may be but imperfectly aware what an essential pillar it is to his hope, and how sanctifying and comforting the blessings are that spring from a full belief in it. The resurrection of Jesus is the great seal to the character and perfection of his work. Indeed, without this divine attestation, his work would never have affected our salvation. His perfect keeping of the law and his suffering unto death were but parts of the vast plan, and taken separately and distinctly were not capable of perfecting the salvation of the church. The apostle so reasons in 1 Corinthians 15:14 through 18 If Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up, if so be, that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Jesus are perished. A moment's reflection will justify the conclusions which the apostle deduces from the supposition that Christ had not risen. Our dear Lord endured the curse of the law. A part of that curse was death, 
death legal, death temporal, death eternal. He was made a curse for us and died. So long as he remained imprisoned in the grave, death had dominion over him. We would have looked in vain to his obedience and sufferings for the proof of the all-sufficiency and acceptableness of his satisfaction as long as the iron scepter of the king of terrors held him in subjection. Oh, what a momentous period were the three days that intervened between the giving up the ghost upon the cross and the bursting of the tomb. The salvation of the whole church hung upon it. All who had already fallen asleep in him, and all whom it was the purpose of God yet to call, were deeply interested in this one fact. But on the third day the destroyed temple was raised again. Death had no more dominion over him. Its sting was extracted. Its scepter was broken. The curse was rolled away. And the redemption of the church was complete. He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Let the reader fully believe this one truth, that Jesus is alive again, and it will afford to his soul greater confirmation of the veracity of God's character, of the truth of his word, and of the perfection and all-sufficiency of Christ's work than all other truths beside. Is Jesus alive at the right hand of God? Then the debt is paid, and justice is satisfied. Is Jesus alive at the right hand of God? Then the Father is well pleased in the work of His only begotten Son, and He rests in His love, and rejoices over His church with singing. Is Jesus alive? Then every promise shall be fulfilled, and all the blessings of the everlasting covenant shall be freely bestowed, and I, a poor, worthless sinner, yet resting upon his atoning work, shall live also. May the Holy Ghost lead you into the full belief, the belief of the heart as well as of the judgment of this glorious truth. It is the keystone of the temple. Press it as you will. The more you lean upon it, the stronger you will find it. The more you rest upon this pillar, the firmer will grow your hope. Only receive it in simple faith. Jesus is alive, alive for you. All you want in this veil of tears is here. All your temporal mercies are secured to you here. All your spiritual blessings are laid up for you here. Such is the great charter. Such are the immense untold blessings it contains that, come how you will, come when you will, and ask what you will, it shall be granted you of the Father, because Jesus is at his right hand. Well, may we take up the dauntless challenge of the apostle. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Your salvation is complete, your heaven secure, and all victory, happiness, and glory bound up in this one great fact. Then may we not again exclaim with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta. Abbreviated capital A capital B 
Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.